welcome to our annual Haldane Lecture in memory of John Scott Haldane and his son J.B.S. Haldane, whose house stood on the site where Wolfson College now stands. Both father and son carried out pioneering experiments in physiology and they made the most of living at a time when ethics approval procedures were a bit less stringent than they are today. The father was really dedicated to understanding how the human respiratory system works and among other things he shut himself in a sealed container and inhaled various doses of carbon monoxide and took notes on what that did to him. I gather the notes are not always very coherent depending on what dose he'd inhaled. It's easy to respond to his experiments with horrified fascination but he actually did a lot of good in the world. He helped victims of gas attacks. He went personally to the trenches in World War I to find out what gas was being used. He went and investigated mining disasters and he paved the way for modern health and safety standards in mining. The younger Haldane first took part in his father's experiments at the age of three and went on to follow very much in his father's footsteps. He also did a bit of life writing. He did a brief autobiographical sketch. And in that, he says, perhaps my most important discovery in physiology was that when I drank ammonium chloride solution, I developed various symptoms of severe acid poisoning, including breathlessness. <laughs> Tonight's speaker is Dame Nancy Rothwell. She's been at the University of Manchester since 1987 first as a Royal Society Research Fellow, and then via an impressive series of elevations. Today she's President and Vice-Chancellor of the University, as well as Professor of Physiology. She's a hugely distinguished scientist. She's won more honours than I could list. Um, I will mention that she's an Honorary Fellow of Somerville College, but it's okay because we're on perfectly friendly terms with Somerville. She's published in many areas of science, including obesity, energy balance, as in the balance between the energy that we take in and the energy that we expend. She's interested in how the brain responds to trauma, and her current research is on the role of inflammation in brain disease. She's got some things in common with the Haldane father and son, her very broad scientific interests and her particular expertise in physiology. She also got into science at a very young age. Her father was a science lecturer and she spent her, 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 her childhood with skeletons and specimens and scientific books. But she's also made the point in print that not all scientists are really eccentric, despite apparent evidence to the contrary. In her book, Who Wants to Be a Scientist? She writes, children asked to draw a scientist often sketch an elderly, always male, rather eccentric character, usually with fluffy hair, glasses, and leaking pens. She comments that these views on scientists are not always wildly inaccurate, and it, that it's therefore particularly important that people who don't fit that stereotype communicate with the public to expose the public to actual evidence on the whole range of people who can be scientists. I think it's very fitting that she's going to give the Haldane Lecture tonight, and it's a huge pleasure to welcome her, Nancy.
So thank you very much indeed, Philemon. Um, and I should say, although uh, it wasn't quite as bad as when Haldane was experimenting, as an undergraduate in London studying physiology a long time ago, it was absolutely normal that we experimented on ourselves, usually by consuming excessive quantities of alcohol or insufficient oxygen or other such things that would never be permitted today. But I always thought it was part of training to be a physiologist that you were the subject of your experiments. And even during my PhD, one of the things I took part in was an experiment to see how much weight we would put on if we ate 3,500 calories a day for three weeks. And uh, four of the 25 people remain obese to this day. Um, I rapidly lost the two kilos I gained and uh, was most fortunate. So thank you for the invitation to give this very prestigious lecture. Um, and it's very nice to see some friends here as well. And of course, um, you've given me uh, what is always the impossible task of trying to say something that's um, interesting and useful to those of you in the audience who are experts in the field that I'm going to be talking about, and those of you who know absolutely nothing about it. So let me apologise to you both now, because I'm sure I will um, disappoint you both to some extent, um, but try to at least put the research we do into a general context, such that um, those who are not familiar uh, may be able to follow it and um, with um, some science as well. So the stroke of bad luck, and stroke really is bad luck, um, because if you get a stroke, um, things don't look too good for the future. Um, they look a lot better than they did 10 or 15 years ago, I have to say, when it was basically a third would die and a third would be disabled and a third might get better, probably without anybody doing very much anyway. It's much better than it was then. But nevertheless, it is still a massive uh, cause of um, death and disability. But let me go back um, one stage beyond that, because um, we think of many diseases of the brain as being very different, and of course they are very different. And if you think about uh, trauma, most commonly occurs in young people, uh, normally motorcycle accidents, sporting events, or if you're in the United States, the commonest cause of head trauma is gunshot wounds to young men. Uh, whereas, of course, dementia, whether it's Alzheimer's or vascular dementia or other types, tend to be more common in the elderly. Seizures can occur at all times. Some of these are chronic disorders. Dementias can develop over decades, whereas a stroke tends to happen rather suddenly, as indeed uh, can some of the others. And yet there is one thing that is importantly in common with these seemingly very, very different disorders, and that is that the key cells in the brain, the nerve cells or the neurons, are damaged or die. And that happens in all of these. And actually what we're starting to recognise now is that there are more things in common with these different disorders and that there may be some approaches that will apply to very different diseases. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about those. The focus of our research has mainly been on stroke, uh, which is something you may be familiar with. And it occurs when there's reduced blood flow and therefore oxygen to a part or parts of the brain. And it remains in the Western world a third biggest killer and a bit massive cause of disability. And it is actually increasing, particularly as developing nations are facing problems of diabetes, of hypertension and obesity. It most commonly happens when an artery in the brain, like this one shown here, blocks with a clot. Uh, but it can also happen when an artery bursts and bleeds, or when there's poor general circulation or heart failure, drowning when oxygen supply to the brain is reduced, or in babies that have a reduced supply of oxygen. Now, they're not all cool strokes, but it's the same condition. It's the condition of cerebral ischemia, where the brain is not getting sufficient oxygen. If that's for a short time or it's not too severe, it's fine. 
and it may manifest in something you will have, may have heard of as mini strokes or transient ischemic attacks from which people recover quite readily, although it can be a sign of a future stroke. But if it's severe or prolonged, then it will result in loss of damage to the brain. So for all the research in strokes, some of it conducted by me and many others, of course, where are we? Well, it is a massive clinical and social burden. There are limited treatments. The key treatment now, uh, which is applied, is to unblock the clot with an enzyme called T TPA, which actually gobbles up the clot and therefore the blood reflows. There are other things around management of a stroke, rehabilitation, about managing high blood pressure and so on. But they are still limited treatments and they apply only in some cases. There has been a massive failure of clinical trials in stroke in spite of a lot of fundamental research and we can argue about the various different reasons for this and uh, it could have been that we've been attacking the wrong targets or the wrong patients or the wrong trials. The scientists will say the clinicians did bad trials and the clinicians will of course say the scientists gave them the wrong information and, and probably a bit of each is true. But there have been many, many billions of pounds spent on trials of new treatments in stroke which have not been successful. And as a result of that, unfortunately, the major companies, the major pharmaceutical companies, now have little interest in stroke because they think it's too difficult and there is very limited government funding. And it won't surprise you to know that I'm unhappy about that. So, um, so what did go wrong, actually? An analysis of many, many studies suggests there are a number of reasons. So it could be that the focus has been on the brain. That's the organ that's damaged. So why not focus on the brain? But there's a view now that actually we're looking in the wrong place. It's the blood vessels, the vasculature, that where the disease is occurring in most cases. We tended to focus on what goes wrong with normal disease processes. Uh, sorry, no, normal processes. And I'll give you an example of that in a moment. Processes that we need for our normal brains to function, rather than looking at what's specific to disease. We've probably failed to account for all the other complicating factors that go along with a stroke, whether it's obesity, whether it's old age, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, and so on. And we've also tended to treat stroke as a single disease, a bit the same way we used to think of cancer many years ago. You had cancer. Now, you never think of a single treatment for cancer. It's a different treatment depending on not only if it's breast cancer, but it's breast cancer with this specific mutation or a different specific mutation. And we may need to think about stroke as a multiplicity of diseases with different approaches. So what does happen in the brain? Um, well, obviously, a complex series of events. And this cartoon just illustrates a clot that's occurred here um, in, in a major artery in the brain. And the area around the clot isn't damaged. It's the territory it supplies, of course, that is damaged. And what happens, and this is a sort of very simplified view, is there's a part right at the core of where that artery supplies that might not get much more blood from other arteries that is very severely affected, that, that dies very, very quickly. And it may not be a core like that, it may be distributed around. And then there are other areas where the blood supply is low, but it's survivable, particularly if the blood supply is restored quickly, for example, with TPA. And, and that's a sort of general view of, of, of what happens in a stroke. And, and we know that some cells die very, very quickly, and that others take a while to die, often over hours. And, and this we know from brain imaging, because uh, if you look at a standard CT scan, uh, unless you're a, an expert, you might not see too much wrong. But if you look at more complex imaging, for example, using PET, you already see changes in function 
and these develop over time. We also know that patients who are quite severely disabled with a stroke can make a remarkable recovery if they're given the clot buster TPA very quickly. And there's a fascinating story about when, when this was um, actually found to have an effect, particularly in patients where we got to very quickly, and obviously those where there wasn't bleeding, then the recovery could be incredible. And uh, there's a great story told by um, the head of uh, the stroke division at the National Institutes for Health in the United States about how they got the message out, that if you've got a stroke, get to hospital quickly, a bit like a heart attack, and you get TPA and you'll be fine. And the way they delivered this was showing it on an episode of the medical soap ER. And sure enough, a patient came in, couldn't move, lost speech, Miracle. Problem was that episode of ER was shown in the United Kingdom before TPA was licensed and lots of people who got a numb arm from sitting on it uh, turned up at A&E. Uh, but TPA is now in widespread use. So one of the curious things we know about what happens in the brain is that our own cells can kill other cells. They actually murder them. Um, and in fact, a damaged neuron nerve cell releases many toxins that kills its neighbours. So it isn't just the low oxygen, it's a whole array of events that are going on, the pH in the brain, the levels of certain uh, transmitters and ions. And we all have in our brains, stored very carefully and released in tiny amounts, molecules that are very, very toxic to our brain cells. They're also essential for our normal brains to function. And some of these are, are things like chemical transmitters, without which we wouldn't function, like glutamate, Ions like calcium that move in and out of cells, free radicals that when generated in modest amounts uh, are, are not harmful, and then as I'll come on to immune molecules. But just to give you the example of glutamate, and this is again a, a cartoon-like uh, presentation, glutamate um, is potentially very, very toxic indeed. And it's stored very carefully uh, in the brain. And it's released in response to electrical stimulus. It, it's, it's released from a cell. It acts on another cell and sends a signal. Then it's quickly taken back up again. What happens in a stroke is a catastrophic increase in glutamate. Not only is massive amounts released, but also the mechanisms that would normally take up that glutamate to stop it having any damaging effects, they start to fail as well because they need oxygen and then energy. So you go from this normally very controlled situation to this massive release. And there's a huge effort in trying to block either the release of glutamate in a stroke or the actions of glutamate in a stroke. And if you think about it, what a challenge that is to block that massive release and effect and yet leave this intact. And those studies were promising, but obviously not successful in the end. So a number of groups then started to think about, well, what happens in the brain after a stroke that isn't involved in normal function, that you don't need to go about your daily activities. And of course, there is one process in our bodies that is a key feature of disease, that is not present in healthy tissues, but is there in inf infected or injured tissues, and that's inflammation. We've all experienced inflammation. It's commonly associated with arthritis, with asthma, with inflammatory bowel disease. This was taken from the cover of Time magazine a number of years ago, and already by then, we were starting to recognize the role of inflammation in atherosclerosis, the furring of arteries, which of course is a major cause of stroke, in obesity, in psoriasis, in diabetes, in cancer, and indeed in diseases of the brain. So inflammation is something that is switched on as a host defense response. It helps our tissues to get more blood, to recruit cells that will help repair and recovery. But when it's overactivated or for too long or in the wrong place, 
inflammation kills us. And it is a key feature of all, most diseases probably, um, if not all. So inflammation in the brain for many years was thought to be different and not important um, because the brain's been called an immune-privileged organ, one that is different to all the rest of the body. Apart from anything else, it's got a barrier around it. The blood vessels are not as pervious as, as other parts of um, the body. For many years, they thought the immune system just didn't apply to the brain. What we now know is it absolutely does, but it is a bit different. It certainly has many of the molecules, uh, has some of the cells that participate in an inflammatory response. And indeed, some of the cells from outside the brain can move into the brain uh, during disease such as stroke. And so inflammation in the brain is a result of both actions of cells within the brain, and here are the neurons, the one we worry about, but here actually are another set of cells in the brain that are probably equally important. And then there are cells from the blood that move into the brain. So this group of cells, known as glia, and glia literally means glue. And I don't know how well you can see it, but here's a blood vessel here. And the staining here is for different sorts of glial cells. So um, a colleague of mine who worked on glia for many years said, rather than calling the brain the central nervous system, we should call it the central glial system, because glia actually outnumber neurons. And whereas once they were thought of as passive glue, structural, filled in the gaps, whatever, we now know they are incredibly active. They're involved in support, nutrition, communication, repair, and they can both contribute to and help with brain damage. And I'll illustrate a couple of examples of those. But if you remember, I told you that damaged neurons can kill healthy neurons. Well, so um, damaged neurons can activate glia, which also kill healthy neurons, because glia can also release inflammatory molecules and other toxins. We focused on a, a key group of those toxins, a group of proteins that everybody knew was very important outside the brain, but it took some time for us to realize that actually they were also important in the brain. And this is a group of molecules called the cytokines. There are hundreds of them. I can't keep up with the numbers of them. And these are proteins normally produced by immune cells, but other cells can produce them as well. And they are released by glia in the damaged brain. And a key one I'll talk about in a moment is interleukin-1. Now, some of these cytokines, even if you're not a biologist, you'll have heard of probably interferons, uh, obviously uh, some of them useful in treatment, blocking them, some of them useful, tumor necrosis factor, uh, and, and others that are critical in disease and a massive target for drugs that help in various forms of inflammatory disease and other disease. Now, interleukin-1 is, is, is my favourite, the one I've worked on, and one of the most famous because it was the first cytokine really to be identified and to find out what it did. And it was found out because scientists were looking for what they called the endogenous pyrogen, and that is, what's the molecule that causes fever? We knew for many, many years you could have an infection that was far distant from the brain and you got a fever but your temperature is controlled absolutely within your brain. So how did the brain know there was an infection somewhere else? All sorts of potential mechanisms. There was speculation, though, that there was a molecule called the endogenous pyrogen. And the story about its first isolation is a fascinating one, because what a group of scientists did um, was um, they isolated it from the urine of many hundreds of nuns in a convent who happened to get an infection at the same time. And so they've speculated that they would have urine with lots of endogenous pyrogen in it, and indeed they isolated 
this molecule called interleukin-1. And it was then co-discovered by various other different routes and found to have many, many different actions, and it became known as IL-1. Now, I mentioned for a long time the brain was thought to be different and not quite the same as the rest of the body, but, but actually it, it, we already knew of things where the brain was important. You know, when you get flu, it's actually your brain that controls a huge number of the responses to that infection rather than your immune system, or it's your immune system acting via the brain. So we know, for example, that cytokines are responsible for fever, for loss of appetite, for weight loss, for many hormonal changes, for many changes in the nervous system, and indeed in the immune system. They are the key cause of sleepiness and lethargy, because the best thing you can do when you've got an infection is curl up and be hot. By the way, don't take an antipyretic. You're better being warm for a while, because it's more likely to fight the infection. Um, and that, that many of these effects are indeed uh, driven by cytokines. Interesting, a fascinating observation. Interleukin-1 was known to activate many immune cells in the body, um, and particularly release some of those immune cells from the bone marrow, like neutrophils. Putting interleukin-1 into the brain is a thousand times more potent than it is putting it directly into the rest of the body, suggesting that it's directly activated, or part of it at least, from within the brain. And uh, we and others then showed that, in fact, that we, we undertook a series of, of studies to say, could inflammation and this cytokine interleukin-1 be important in stroke? And we did what classical pharmacologists do. Is it there at the right time or the right place? If you add more of it, does it have a greater effect? And if you block it, do you stop the effect you're seeing? And very briefly, I'll show you how we did that. We and many others have shown that there's a big increase in interleukin-1 after stroke in animals and in humans. Um, and you can actually see it's largely produced by the glia. So these are the glia, the microglia, the little glia, uh, they are, and this is a staining for interleukin-1 to show that they're the main source. We also showed that when we knew for a long time that if you had a stroke and you had a fever, it often got worse. Now, nobody quite knew why that was, and we're still not sure, but one of the reasons might be because you're producing a lot of interleukin-1. And the last thing you want after a stroke or a head injury to, is to get an infection. But we also wanted to block interleukin-1 and ask if we could make the damage caused by a stroke in experimental rats and mice, if we could make it better. And we were very fortunate because there is a naturally occurring blocker of interleukin-1. It's called uh, an imaginatively interleukin-1 receptor antagonist. And for those of you not familiar, most proteins, many molecules in the body, act by docking into a very specific site on a cell and causing their responses. We're always trying to find things that block it. Drug industry is based on it, trying to block something that causes your blood pressure to be high, and you synthesize a chemical, and that blocks it, and it brings your blood pressure down. We were lucky. There was this naturally occurring interleukin-1 receptor antagonist which docks into the same site and blocks the actions. It is, to my mind, still the only known molecule in the body that does nothing apart from specifically act as an antagonist to this molecule, IL-1. We've still not found any actions. And then if we induce uh, a stroke uh, in animals under anesthesia, what we find is the damage and the controls is about this much. When you increase interleukin-1, either by injecting it or by other means, it's worse. But most importantly, if you block IL-1 with the naturally occurring antagonist, the damage is dramatically reduced. And to cut many, many years of work from many people very, very shortly, there are a lot of studies showing that each different form of IL-1, that there are, there are several forms of it, are produced very quickly after a stroke, and in a manner, in, in, in a location, on a time course, that is consistent with the damage. 
that increasing IL-1, whether it's injected or whether it's increased because of an infection, makes brain damage worse. And most importantly, that inhibition of IL-1 reduces the injury. And actually now there have been many studies, laboratory studies, that looked at not just stroke, but other forms of brain uh, damage. And so, for example, um, looked at various different types of stroke, whether it's a very localised stroke or a generalised stroke, uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, damage caused by chemical toxins. This is a model of multiple sclerosis, seizures, and in experimental Alzheimer's disease. And in all of those, blocking IL-1 has some beneficial effect. So this appears to be a, a potentially positive uh, outcome, which may have some benefits. So then we're left with quite a number of questions. How, do, what, how is the production and release of IL-1 controlled, and can we stop it? And I'm not really going to talk about that, but we found a number of the enzymes that cause the release of IL-1, and there are attempts to block those. How does it act, and is it of clinical relevance? And just to say a couple of things about how IL-1 acts, because although the stroke is in the brain, we think actually that's not the only site of IL-1 action. We think it could also be having effects outside the brain. So we think there are two ways, and we've done uh, experiments, uh, for those of you who are familiar, called adoptive transfer, where you take bone marrow out of, of animals with IL-1 or without IL-1 and transport it, and you find that it's both the IL-1 from the brain marrow and the IL-1 from the brain, and they're both important, um, suggesting that they're very complicated actions. And we know that when there's an inflammation um, outside the, the brain, that is linked to cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease. You increase the risk of having a stroke significantly if you're in an at-risk group and you have an infection. Um, we also know that IL-1 is produced outside the brain in response to something that happens in the brain, and we know um, that there is rapid production of IL-1 in the brain when something happens outside the brain. That's what causes the fever. So it does seem as though there are several different sites of action. And even within the brain, we now believe that the main source of IL-1 are these microglia, the little glia, but we know that they act to some extent on neurons, but not significantly, but particularly on these other glia called the astrocytes that release toxins that kill the neurons, but also importantly, on the edge of the blood vessels, which is called the endothelial cells. And there, again, they release toxins, but importantly, they attract circulating blood cells like these neutrophils that are released from the bone marrow to come and invade the brain, and they are toxic as well. Now, the issue about whether IL-1 is produced in the brain and causes the stroke damage or outside is an important one that I'll just come on to in a few minutes, because that will tell us whether or not we need to get the antagonist into the brain. Because if it's all happening in the brain, these are quite big molecules, these are quite big proteins, and getting molecules into the brain is not always easy because of that barrier I, I told you about where things don't readily perfuse into the brain. We also know a lot about how our one acts when it gets to a cell, uh, about the mechanisms it, it uh, activates when it gets it, uh, locks onto that cell. And um, this is a very simplistic view of what happens, and I won't go into that in any more detail, but a huge cascade of events occurs. The circles here are something which I've been introduced to recently um, through colleagues of of using um, uh, computer models to look at the points in a pathway that might be what we call the most fragile. In other words, the ones that if you just block that little bit, you might block the whole pathway. Or if you block two of them together, you might be able to use a lower dose of the two inhibitors and get an overall impact. And that's something 
that, that we're toying with because the interleukin-1 receptor antagonist um, is good and safe, as I'll come on to tell you uh, in a few moments, but it is also, as I say, quite large and not that cheap. Um, although hopefully for stroke, you would only need to use it for treatment for a short period of time. If it were going to be used for other chronic conditions, then it would start to become quite expensive. But I've gone into rather little detail about the mechanisms because I wanted to say something about what does this potentially mean for patients, for stroke patients and for other patients. And the key questions around this have been, could infection or inflammation actually cause a stroke? We have evidence, and others have evidence, that it does. And certainly, um, there have been studies I mentioned before of the risk of getting a stroke if you have um, a significant infection, like an upper uh, chest infection. That increases the risk of a stroke for about three weeks. There have also been studies done in patients who've had mini-strokes, who have a higher risk, and they are also at risk if, if they uh, get an infection. Do inflammation and cytokines worsen clinical outcome? The answer to that is we think so, but we can't be sure because, of course, showing cause and effect is always very difficult. Patients get worse if they have an infection or inflammation. And, of course, as we get older, we have more inflammatory conditions. We have more background inflammation. There's a view now that aging is a condition of inflammation. Even if you're not actually ill, you will have more of a tendency towards an inflammatory state. So that is, is probably... But the key question has been, could blocking IL-1, potentially with the IL-1 receptor antagonist, be of benefit in patients who have a stroke? And, and that requires a clinical trial, which, as I've said uh, previously, have largely failed in stroke and are very difficult and very expensive. And here was a point where things... I suddenly became more expert in a different field of physiology and neuroscience. And By the way, I changed fields halfway through my career. I suddenly started to become a lawyer because the patent for interleukin-1 receptor antagonist was owned by a large American corporation that was very keen that we should not use it for our studies. But we'd filed a use patent for its application in CNS diseases. We spent so long wrangling about it, actually the patent has expired for both, so it will probably be freely usable, which is absolutely fine. Um, but, but there have been a number of studies done to try and get at, first of all, the question is inflammation important in the brains of um, patients with stroke or related conditions? And there's been a lot of work on this, not our work, and I'll just illustrate one piece of work um, from Richard Bernati. And this shows a cartoon showing where somebody's had a stroke here. And uh, you can see some damage here if you look carefully. But this is a PET image, and positron emission tomography picks up very low-level um, uh, signals of radioactivity. And this patient has been injected with an agent. It's called this exciting name of PK11195, and that binds specifically to the activated microglia, the source of the interleukin-1. So this is asking the question, are those cells activated around the stroke? And indeed they are. Uh, you can see here a core of damage, and here the microglia are activated around the site of the stroke, and quite early as well. Now, that doesn't prove that those microglia are actually contributing to the damage. It doesn't tell you interleukin-1 is being produced, although we know it is. But it tells you in a living patient that actually those microglia are activated. So there's a fair chance that R1 will be being produced. We actually did a very small study, and I'll just put it up as an illustration, uh, relevant to the question of could inflammation predispose towards a stroke. And we took um, patients who were healthy. They hadn't had a stroke. They hadn't had any clinical conditions. But we took a group that had high levels of inflammatory markers. And we thought they had a high level of inflammation. 
in their bodies generally, even though there were no <coughs> symptoms, and an age match group that had, did not have high levels of inflammation. And we did the same sort of PET imaging. And what we found was the patients at the top who haven't had a stroke, but they've got the risk factors, appeared to have more inflammation. Now, we failed to follow up um, one of these, but several of them did go on. One, one went on to dementia, actually. Uh, and that needs a much, much bigger study to tell whether or not, A, this is reproducible, and B, do they actually then go on to get um, brain diseases? Obviously, the key question is whether interleukin-1 receptor antagonists could be uh, a possible treatment for stroke and, indeed, for other conditions. And, and you have to satisfy several things in order to answer that question. Um, the first, um, does it get into the brain? Now, remember, we're not sure it has to, but it would be good if it did. And this molecule is 17,000 molecular weight, um, so it's, it's not small. And there are no small antagonists that are effective at the moment. Is it safe? Critical, of course. Um, but interestingly, I mentioned earlier that the only known action of this IL-1 blocker is to block IL-1. That is a dream for anybody who's a pharmacologist or developing a drug, because most drug side effects are because they do other things. Um, and it doesn't, as far as we know. Um, and indeed, does it work? Um, and I can't answer all of those questions, but, but uh, we're starting to answer some of them. And, and before I go on to that, um, one of the things that's very interesting is, is when we're looking at diseases and we know the molecules involved, people start to look at whether there are changes, small mutations, in the proteins that are associated with those diseases. So do people who get a stroke, have they got more mutations in their interleukin-1? Actually, no, they haven't. Interestingly, they have more mutations in their interleukin-1 receptor antagonist, suggesting it might be a change in the blocker. And actually, uh, if you take animals that haven't got any IL-1, uh, their stroke damage is much better. And if you take animals that don't have any of the antagonists, because you've deleted it genetically, their damage is much worse. So actually, it could be the natural balance between the two. But we wanted to know if um, this uh, protein, interleukin-1 receptor antagonist, gets into the brain. And, and, and we did animal studies where we labelled it and did PET imaging. But a better study, we felt, was actually to do this in patients. And of course, this is limited what you can do in patients, and certainly in stroke patients. So what we did instead was looked at another group of patients, and these are patients who've had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And this means uh, a blood vessel has burst and it's bleeding into the brain. And I'll just show a slightly gory slide in a minute, just to warn you, but only slightly gory. Um, but uh, the thing about patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage is they're treated by neurosurgeons. They're often on a neurosurgical unit, often the swelling in the brain that increases pressure. So the neuro neurosurgeons put in a line to drain out some of the fluid that surrounds the, the brain, the cerebrospinal fluid. And we thought we could use this to test whether or not the interleukin-1 receptor antagonist gets into the brain by infusing it into these patients and then taking the cerebrospinal fluid. And um, this illustrates the sort of drain that goes in here that you can then take. The, the cerebrospinal fluid is being taken off anyway, and that goes into one of the spaces around the brain and is screwed in. And this is a, a clip on an aneurysm. So we did that, and we infused um, uh, the antagonist into patients, and we looked at the blood levels, and we looked at the cerebrospinal fluid levels. And what we found was the blood levels went up very, very quickly and stayed very high. The cerebrospinal fluid levels went up more slowly and not as high, but we know from laboratory studies that this is above the threshold we need to block IL-1. So that's, and we've then done modeling of different dosing regimes. This was given intravenously. Uh, we've also given it subcutaneously because under the skin, because that's an easier route to give it. But the point is enough can get in to be effective, whether it needs to or not. 
So we've now conducted a number of small studies in patients. The first one was a long time ago, in fact, with a very small group of patients. And we did this because we knew interleukin-1 receptor antagonist is actually very safe. It's, it's used not very effectively, I have to say, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. It's now being, starting to be used in other conditions, particularly conditions where there are mutations in interleukin-1 and there's very severe inflammation. It's now being uh, tested in um, various forms of diabetes and in other cardiovascular disease. So we know it's very safe. Um, we um, had a lot of preclinical studies, uh, so we knew something about what dose we would have to use. And so we designed what's called a four, small phase two study. Um, a phase one study is when you test it in normal volunteers, and a phase two study is when you test it for the first time in, in, in actual patients, not to see if it works because the study's too small, but rather to say, can we give it, is it tolerated well, are there any unexpected side effects? And, and so we did that, um, and um, this was double-blinded. In other words, we didn't know what they got, and placebo control, which means that half the patients got the R1 was antagonist and half got something that didn't work. And it was randomized, so patients came in and were distantly randomized. And the main outcome was, was it safe and, and, and could we deliver it? And, and the case was yes. What we did look at, though, is something that's uh, commonly looked at, which is biomarkers. Things in the circulation that might give you an idea that your drug is working. And there are lots of biomarkers for inflammation. And we measured all of these, and the details don't particularly matter, but this is uh, the number of circulating neutrophils, the ones I mentioned, that uh, are released and can damage the brain. Um, this is the total number of white cells uh, in the circulation. This is a protein called C-reactive protein that's a good inflammatory marker. And this is another cytokine called interleukin-6 uh, that interleukin-1 induces. And in every case, the upper line is the placebo group, and the lower line is those given interleukin-1 receptor antagonists. And so you see, first of all, it's higher. The inflammatory markers in every case in the placebo treated, it goes up, it peaks. This is what we call an acute phase response, a response to the stroke. And in every case, it's much lower in uh, the group treated with the antagonist. Um, this was long before the days of TPA and, and clot busters. Um, so these patients really had very little other treatment than management, and outcomes were quite poor. And we looked at um, the outcomes three months later. And um, these are neurological scores, but um, you don't need to be a neurologist. Um, I think it's easiest to say that black is dead, and the bars at the top are really very well indeed. And these are two different sorts of scores. So in the placebo group, there was a slightly higher death rate. This here means loss to the study, not followed up. And a slightly uh, greater number that seemed to be well. Um, so that was encouraging. Um, and I should say, um, I can't tell you how many small trials of interventions in diseases have been positive and big trials then aren't. And it seems to be a feature of particularly diseases like stroke, that the small trial is great and then you go bigger and, and it doesn't work so well. And that may well still be the case because we haven't done the big trial. So we completed um, that study and since then we've completed two other studies which are larger uh, phase two studies in subarachnoid hemorrhage um, the bleeding and brain, because we don't think there's any adverse reaction to bleeding at all. Uh, one of the things about TPA is you can't give it to patients who've got a hemorrhage because it would cause more bleeding. Um, and then in stroke, and we're just now beginning a, a full phase three multi-centre study um, across the UK um, that has been funded by the Medical Research Council. In the study in subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, we got pretty much the same result as we did in the small study. And most importantly were these two key inflammatory markers, interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein, 
were both dramatically reduced. And that was encouraging. Again, a relatively small study, but, but bigger than the last one, but the clinical outcomes also looked beneficial. It, it gave an indication that there might be some benefit. So then we did a larger study, but still not a big one, not enough to determine if it works or not, in stroke. And the results of that were surprising. They were surprising because the primary endpoint, when you set up a study, you've got to say, what am I going to measure as the main outcome of this trial? And it's not big enough to measure if patients are better or not. So the primary endpoint was those inflammatory markers. And it fully met those endpoints. But there was no clinical benefit. Even though it wasn't established to show significant clinical benefit, if anything, there was a slight detrimental effect of the antagonist. Now, we're battling with the idea of why was that, and one of the answers might be it's interacting with TPA. Because those stroke patients in the first study, TPA wasn't around, so they didn't get any. Subarachnoid hemorrhage patients, they did better. They never get TPA. Most of these patients, because they came in early, nearly all of them got TPA. So we're now trying to work out whether that is uh, the case or not. And obviously, uh, the next stages are further clinical trials, but we're holding on stroke and focusing on subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, which will be a large clinical study. Just before I finish, um, I, I've talked mainly about stroke, but actually the levels of interleukin-1 in the brain are raised in many other conditions. And I come back to where I started. These are conditions where there's damage to brain cells, to neurons. It's increased in brain injury, in seizures, in infections, in Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, Down syndrome, and so on. And there are some early studies testing some interleukin-1 blockers in some of these conditions. So where we've got to is uh, we're fairly sure that inflammation contributes to a stroke. It's not the only cause. We can't say that. And we've established a key role for this cytokine interleukin-1, at least in experimental studies. And it has effects both in the brain and outside the brain. And it is a promising treatment. We can't say definitively it is a treatment as yet. The focus now is uh, not only on acute treatment, but we've, we've been starting to look at secondary prevention because somebody who's had a stroke is at risk of getting another stroke, but also about recovery and repair. So one of the things we think of the immune system as being good at is helping our tissues to mend. And indeed, that is true. We've done some long-term outcome studies in animals, and it seems that giving interleukin-1 blocker does help with that recovery. That was the opposite to what we expected. But it may be that giving it too late impairs the recovery. So maybe if you give it a week after a stroke, it makes things worse. And that's something we're testing now, because exactly how long it's going to take, um, what timing needs to be delivered, will be critical to the future um, of this as a promising treatment. So I think we can say um, uh, there is a route towards discovering whether this will work. I'm cautious, given the number of failures there have been in stroke trials. One of the arguments for these failures is that we were not robust enough in our preclinical studies. So now we have done everything we can imagine in testing in old, in obese, in atherosclerotic, in diabetic animals. We've repeated the tests in six independent laboratories, all completely blinded, and every one comes out with about the same results. So if it doesn't work, it will be a fundamental difference, I think, between either the clinical trial design and the, the preclinical studies or indeed between human stroke and our understanding of it. Um, so I, I'm going to finish there, but um, 
You noted that my day job is as a vice-chancellor, um, and that means that the credit for most of this, or apart from the earlier work, is, is not to me. I'm very fortunate that many of the people that I train, quite a number of them, are actually have university positions in Manchester. Four of them are now professors, and they actually look after things. Um, and I do want to particularly um, highlight two of them. Professor Pippa Tyrrell, my great friend and director of stroke studies, who's actually just retired through illness, but has promised me she's coming back to work with us. And Professor Stuart Allen, who joined me as a young postdoc and now leads neuroscience in Manchester. But of course, there are many, many more. And um, one of the things I'm very proud of this group is that they not only do clinical and basic research, they also spend a lot of time with stroke survivors and their carers and with the Stroke Association. And all of them do spend a lot of time giving public talks to people who want to understand more about stroke. So thank you to them and thank you to you for your attention.